Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. As I've been saying, I'm going to announce every week somebody else that's going to be hanging out in the Retro RGB section at Retro World Expo, and this week is Scarlet Sprites. So if you're a fan of Joe's work, and if you just want to talk arcade or wrestling or any other craziness, please come down, take a look. I'm sure he'll be hanging around both the expo and the section that we're going to be in, and I can't wait to see as many of you there as possible. But anyway, we got a lot to talk about this week, so let's jump right in. First up, a port of Quake for the Game Boy Advance was recently found and dumped, and it was made by developer Randy Linden, who also made Bleem as well as the Doom port for the SNES. And there is a lot of great information out here about this. I highly recommend, at the very least, scanning Easy Goodnight's post here, but MVG did a great video on it. Forest of Illusion helped release the game, and they have some posts about it. And there's some also some game uh, gameplay footage that Forest of Illusion po- posted out there as well. But basically, this is a really interesting port of Quake that was done with a game engine that Randy basically just built for this. Uh, And it's so impressive to see. So, yes, of course, you could play these games on many different platforms, but I don't think that's why this is so exciting. I think maybe if you owned a GBA and it's Prime and wanted to play Quake, sure, but I think now just seeing what could have been done, seeing developers push the limits of a platform, there's just so many awesome nerdiness-related things to this. So please check out the post if you want more info, and there's plenty of content in here if you want uh, some more demos and some more behind-the-scenes stories about it. The developer who created the Mario 64 ray tracing mod has just announced that they're turning that into an emulator plugin with the goal of adding support for as many games as possible. So this essentially would allow you to fire up software emulation of the N64, and if you have a compatible graphics card, allow ray tracing to be added to the image. On top of that, there's also a goal of even if your graphics card doesn't support ray tracing, possibly hitting a 60 frame per second mark on a lot of games that don't normally support it. So it looks absolutely incredible. I mean, it looks it looks better than you would expect an N64 game to look, even with all of the craziness, the reverse engineered source code. Uh, it's just super impressive. So there's no word on release yet, but definitely keep an eye on, uh, on the creator's Twitter account. And of course, here on Retro RGB, we'll cover it again. But I really truly think that for consoles around the 3D graphic era and forward, software emulation might be, in the long run, what benefits everybody the most. Now, who knows? 30 years from now, we might have an FPGA recreation that mixes in with software, and I don't know. We could all plug into the Matrix and play it or something. But I I think in the short-term future, there's still absolutely a place where software emulation can add things that even FPGA hardware emulation can't at the moment. And stuff like this is really exciting. So thanks to Chris for covering it. And we'll let everybody know when there's something that you could download and try yourself. Epos Fox recently released a video that describes why you might want to use a CRT for gaming in certain scenarios, as well as discusses some alternatives, and really just kind of goes over the whole CRT debate. And I thought it was an awesome video. He had a lot of very cool guests in it. I was lucky to be a guest in it as well. 
And it's one of those things where if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already understand it, but it's really great to see other creators out there start to highlight the uses of CRTs and why some people care about them. Because it's just so easy if you're not involved in this stuff to take a look and think we're all crazy old people wishing for the nostalgia of a past time. And it's really easy to skip past how they have a very specific usefulness to them. And of course, things like you know latency, motion blur, and um, lower resolutions and how they're able to draw the image better. Stuff that we would probably understand better because we're retro gaming focused, so you could very easily see the differences. But it was very happy I was very happy to see another large channel highlight this for more of the general public. So even if you already think you know why you would want to use a CRT instead. I genuinely think this is an entertaining video. So definitely give it a shot. Uh, and hopefully more larger creators could start to highlight, you know, the, the truth about why. Because you don't need to buy super crazy expensive CRTs to get what you're looking to do. You just really need any CRT or CRT VGA monitor. And you could accomplish quite a bit with it. So hopefully we could uh, continue to spread the CRT love, but while also educating people as to why and how you really don't need to spend a lot to get the things that we're all talking about. And of course, if you want to go crazy, yes, find yourself a BBM, calibrate it, restore it, whatever, but you don't need to. This week's podcast is once again sponsored by JLC PCB, and I want to swing back around to the factory tour video, because while I absolutely will be doing some more how-tos and some demonstrations on how to use their service, and especially how to tie it in with ordering assembly as well as parts, I do like to kind of stop and take a breather for a moment and remind people how awesome a facility like this is and how impressive it is to, to be in one of these things. So let's check out what the inside of the facility's like. So while I've never been to an assembly facility as impressive as JLC PCBs, I have been to places like it and I can kind of walk you through what it is that you're seeing here. They have a giant warehouse of component preparation and each shelf is numbered and corresponds to your order so that when your order is ready, everything gets scanned in as well as your PCBs and your stencils. And now when you have a PCB assembly made, a stencil is required because everything's done through machinery for surface mount stuff. So a few weeks ago, I talked about having a stencil for making your own stuff on a reflow oven. Here's how it's done in a factory environment where the machinery goes through and spreads the solder paste only on the areas of the PCB that require any of the components. Then it gets scanned through a different machine to make sure that nothing's splattered and everything lines up. And then comes my favorite part of watching these videos, the pick and place machine. These are different machines that go through and take individual components and place them exactly where they need to be on top of the existing solder paste. These things are so cool to see in person and it's so interesting and fascinating to me how they get programmed to put everything in the exact place they need. But it's not quite done from there. While it's sticky on there, it won't be until it goes through the reflow oven where it's heated up to the correct temperature in order for all of the components to permanently bind to the board. Then it gets inspected to make sure there's no craziness on it and you know nothing splattered through. And then it's sent to the final through-hole assembly. And these are for scenarios like if you have a build that has a bunch of surface mount components, but then a few through-hole components like a SCART connector or a VGA connector. Those have to be soldered through by hand and those are manually done by people on an assembly line who also do the final checks and finish it off to make sure everything looks the way it's supposed to be. 
So that's just a quick behind the scenes look of what happens when you place a PCB assembly order at JLC PCB. I recently did a live stream demoing Mr. 240p120 output, and while I will be having a more formal video about this at some point, I want to give the short version here just to clarify any confusion and hopefully uh, make it easier to understand why I went through all this trouble. But basically, pretty much any VGA CRT monitor can look absolutely amazing and really close to PVM or even BVM territory but it will not accept a 15 kilohertz signal, which is what was coming out of all original consoles or out of a mister if you set it to direct video or use its RGB output of it. So one of the videos I did a few years ago was showing people how to use scalers and line doublers in order to double the signal to 480p for use on these monitors, which works, but changes the signal. So just adding scan lines produces an image that's incredibly similar to like a PVM, but it does darken the image a bit. So if your CRT is still good enough that you could just turn up the brightness, that's pretty much it. You're done. And you could do that with Mr. You could use a specific setting that basically just doubles 15 kilohertz to 31. So you're not quite scaling it. It's more of a true line doubling feature. So you really get an accurate look for most cores. There's some settings that you need to change. You need to change the scaling to a wide integer. Uh, I showed that part in the video as well, but it's super easy. It's just right in the on-screen display menu. So that really is what most people, at least today, would find to be the best solution. But the one downside of that is it does darken the image quite a bit. So one of the things that I finally got to test on this live stream is if you run in a scaler, or in this case, the mister, in 240p mode, but at 120 hertz instead of 60, you get the pretty much exact scan line look that you would get with 240p, but you don't get nearly as dim of an image as you do when you add scan lines to it. So that is the benefit right there, and I think that's absolutely awesome, and I think there's a place for it. There is some downsides, though. First of all, you get motion blur, because each of those frames are now playing twice. So in order for that to really look proper, you would have to have black frame insertion, BFI, where instead of doubling each frame, it plays the frame, then blacks out the screen completely with a full black frame insertion, then moves on to the second one. And by doing it that way, you will really truly get a 240p look with some very few exceptions. However, you need to buffer the image in some way in order to do that, so it could add anywhere from a quarter frame to two frames of lag, depending on settings and many other things. So if BFI was ever added to Mr. or like the DEX project, Marcus's OSSC add-on for the DE10, if uh, 240p120 is added there with BFI, you should end up with a look that's excellent, no motion blur, but just a little bit more lag. So why would you want that if it added lag and the other mode didn't? Well, there's tons and tons of VGA CRT monitors out there that really aren't worth anything because maybe the plastic's yellowed, they make a lot of noise when they come up, they're not that bright anymore. But if you run that in the 120 mode, it's not too dim to play on. And because of the way CRTs work, half a frame of lag to a lag is, uh, to a frame is going to feel much much different than a blurry LCD panel with image retention. So I still think 
240p 120 with BFI is an excellent option for those people. I mean, why are you going to get rid of a monitor that works perfectly good? It's just too dim to add scan lines to it. So there is room for this in the future, as long as BFI is added, and I'm pretty sure it's coming on the decks. So to be clear, I'm not suggesting the Mr. Team drop what they're doing to add a feature that 1% or less of their users would have, uh, would take advantage of. But if they ever get to it, I'll do a follow-up video showing the difference. Um, and it's pretty interesting to see. There's been a lot of talk about this. I've talked about it, but this was the first time I've ever really seen it myself. And I totally get it now. Um, it does add motion blur, which, I mean, depending on your situation, that might be less annoying than a really dim screen if you wanted the scan line look to it. But I, I think there's absolutely a place. So right now at the moment, if you're a Mr. User, still use the line doubling option Try to set all of the settings to zero lag or, or near zero, uh, and then just add 75% scan lines right in the menu and change it to wide integer so that there's no shimmering as you scroll by. And that's pretty much all you would need to do for a really, really excellent solution. I do think I want to swing back and test this out at the very least when the DEX adds this functionality, if it does, just to see if there's any other advantages and disadvantages. Um, the only other two things I'll add is when I originally did the DEX testing, I think I said it, but I'd like to say it again, and that I... The, the lag testing I should have never did because I, I ran it through my capture card. I just wanted to give a basic example and it was all over the place and it misrepresented the decks. So I'll, I'll go back and rescan that soon. And also at the end of this video, we went to test DACs. So HDMI digital to analog converters. And the results were all over the place because they all outputted slightly different voltage. So it was really hard to compare one to the other. So the end of that stream was fun. I got some more friends involved. Shout out to tech. Thank you for, for helping. But um, if you end up watching the stream to the end, it's not quite representative of the results. And all of those testers I used work fine. We'll eventually try to figure out what the best one is or a list of the best ones. But at the moment, for 10 bucks or whatever the cheaper ones cost, I really wouldn't worry about it. If you're just using direct video and you want to get an RGB signal out, just use any deck and you should be fine for now. And even if we find one that's way better, now you have a $10 tool in your toolbox that's probably going to be used for something else. So hopefully all of that made sense. Uh, please just scroll through the post if you want to see more details and stuff on there. And of course, shout out to Bon Yuki because he did this testing last year and he reminded me of it in the comment section of the weekly roundup last week and his comment disappeared, which has been happening a lot lately, which drives me crazy because I'm sure I'm missing a lot of good conversation and a lot of good info. So shout out to Bond. Thanks for reminding me about that. And uh, please check out the video if you want more info. Chris from Displaced Gamers recently posted a video talking about Minus World and Super Mario Brothers. And that's always an interesting conversation that I think is, uh, it's better if I leave that to the smarter people to understand. But basically this video, in Chris's own words, dives into how Super Mario Brothers levels are built, how scroll stops work, what bugs lead to Minus World, and of course, how we could fix those bugs. So 
this is something where if you're into NES coding, even in the slightest bit, I would definitely recommend this video as, you know, pretty much all of Displaced Gamers videos. But uh, I did enjoy this one, and I, I like seeing how weird bugs are used, both as speedrunning exploits and just to find stuff in the game that maybe even the original developers didn't realize were there. And this is just another continuation of conversations like that. So definitely check it out if you're interested. A new project is underway that aims to make the Sega Saturn 3D control pad wireless via a plug-and-play module. So Dave from Sega Saturn Shiro did a great post that really went into detail of exactly the history of the project, um, how it was started, and what the end goals are. And I strongly recommend any fan of the Saturn 3D controller, please give this a read. But I'll give the short, short version here for people that are you know maybe just mildly interested. But basically, a while back, a developer had made their own replacement controller insert for it for people that still had the controller, but maybe had a lost or damaged controller plug on it because uh, those 3d control pads you could eject where the controller plugs into so you know think of the cable one end plugs into the console the other one comes all the way back up and can plug into this and the goal is to make a module that where you could unplug the wired controller plug this in its place and connect to your console or any other bluetooth device and at the moment it's working there's still some tweaking to be done uh, however, the goal has been made of connecting to Blue Retro, so you can connect to original consoles with obviously receiver adapters, but you could also connect it to any other Bluetooth device. There are some things still standing in the way of finishing the project. One of them is the inability to switch between analog and D-pad controls via Blue Retro on the fly. And the other is there's still some input latency, which of course, anytime you're talking about retro consoles, input latency is even more important than it would be for modern consoles. However, it's still in progress, and the person who created it has a goal of, at the very least, being able to release the files to the public for people to do pretty much whatever they want with. There's no word on if this is a product that you'll be able to purchase yet, but hopefully they'd be willing to team up with stores, and especially stores who are good at having things made for people, and be able to eventually make this a product that people can just buy. And of course, I'd love to see two versions, one that comes with the controller adapter and a Sega Saturn receiver, Bluetooth receiver, and another one that's just the adapter so that you can connect it to Mr. or your PC or whatever else you got. So it's a very, very interesting project. And I'd really like to see... Uh, I'm just really interested to see what else is going to come out of the ability to add modules to that Saturn 3D controller, because I guess that really was the inspiration for the Dreamcast controller and the removable VMU and all the other accessories that you could have for it. So thanks very much to anybody who's contributed to these projects and, of course, to the Shiro team for always keeping us up to date on everything awesome going on in the Saturn scene. I recently did a live stream with James from Retro HQ about the Atari Jaguar, and it looks much longer than it really is, uh, so allow me a very quick moment to explain. What we ended up doing was, did a brief opening of what the Jaguar is, super brief on that, and then we went through all of the accessories that I thought would be the perfect companion for the Jaguar today. So video out adapters like the Jag AIOA, controller inserts so you could see what the extra buttons was supposed to be for, of course the game drive that James made, and my favorite accessory, the Tempest spinner controller. Of course, mine was modded by Nick Persane, who I've been talking to for years about this stuff. So we kind of went through that 
um, some of the bugs that you'll find on the Jaguar, and then we played a bunch of games. So that's why I said it looks a lot longer than it is. If you were really looking for just a nice overview of the Jaguar, then the first 20-something minutes is probably just exactly what you were looking for. Then you could kind of skip through, and hopefully I'll have time to go and add chapter markings so you could take a look at the different games. But we wanted to play... I wanted to at least start out with some of the terrible games that I was tortured with as a child when we got one of these at our house uh, one one holiday season. And then I wanted to show some of the good games, and then we kind of messed around with a few things in between. And of course, because it's a Jaguar, we had some technical issues here and there. But I really enjoyed it, and I would also like to see what you all think about this, because I'm still kind of struggling with how to present things on this channel, because I very often end up spending 30 or 40 hours on a video that gets 15,000 views, and it just really ends up uh, not not performing the way it should for something that took that much time. So I'm also trying on the flip side of things, live stream videos like this that take a, you know, about a day. You know, there's a whole bunch of preparation, couple hour live stream, then there's the cleanup and the, you know, the whole preparing of the post. And of course, there's a third option that I haven't figured out yet and not even sure if it's something I could do, but I could do these live stream styles and then re-edit them and cut them into a 15 minute video and and kind of go down that road but i'm trying to basically the goal of what i'm trying to do here is to figure out a way to still be me but work the algorithm better because if i wanted to be a better youtuber i would have to change everything i did and probably annoy most of the people that listen and watch these things because you're here to get the information not to help me milk the algorithm. So I'm trying to find the happy medium. Maybe that really is the better way to go about doing it is the third option, but then I need to find time to edit these things after I'm done. So I would love all of your opinions on this, the format style, any suggestions. If you work for YouTube, of course, any tips are appreciated because uh, their support is useless. And um, also, what do you think about the Jaguar? I still like it. I still think Tempest is my favorite game, but there's so many fun and interesting accessories from the homebrew community. Uh, and I just think it's it's a neat and interesting console to kind of to play with and eventually I will do a follow-up if there's ever a stable Mr. Core. Um, there's been a few developers that have talked about working on it so we'll see where that goes but um, the one thing that we would definitely really need to have a true Atari Jaguar experience on the Mr. is a controller adapter so uh, maybe I can get one of these over to Mick Giver who could possibly maybe make an adapter for us I don't know we'll see but in fact, I would be more than willing to donate a Jaguar controller, so we'll we'll figure it out. If anybody's able to to do something like the Damon Byte adapters that are one milliseconds of lag or less to have the Jaguar controller working through USB, I'm totally down to help. So uh, let me know what you think about all of those things. Developer Roman Brahmi has created a flex cable replacement for the original PC Engine 72 pin cable. So for anybody that might not be aware, the original PC Engine is a two-piece design. It's that square box where the bottom motherboard has pretty much all of the chips and circuitry on it, and the top board has the hue card slot with a few other things, and those are connected with essentially a 72-pin IDE cable that's soldered directly onto it. And one of the main issues is after 30-plus years, that cable starts to dry out, and when you open up the console, you stretch the cable and put it back, one or two of the connections inside breaks, 
and it's pretty much impossible to figure out which is which and and repair them. It's actually a huge pain for anybody who owns one of these because maybe you've tested the console and it works fine. You open it up and do a RGB mod or a recap or something. You put it back together and it doesn't work, and then you're chasing ghosts for hours thinking maybe it was something you did when it really is just the cable. And to replace it, means desoldering and resoldering a lot of pins with a cable that has the just standard cable in it. So it's very hard to replace these. And what Remain did was have a solution where you still have to desolder everything, but then you resolder standoffs in its place, drop a PCB over those, and that would allow you to then just drag solder that on, and then connect the two with a ribbon cable. So not only is it probably easier to do the replacement anyway. If anything should happen in the future, you just pop out the old ribbon cable and put a new one in. So right now, as is, I think this is an awesome fix and probably the best fix for any ribbon cable problems on your original PC engine. If you want, you could purchase these kits directly from the main developer, or it's open source. You could make your own if you'd like as well, which I'm always super appreciative of. Uh, so just a few other things I'd like to mention about this. I don't know if this is a pipe dream wishful thinking, but I have seen a bunch of top boards go bad over the years. Either they're cracked, um, you know, the traces tend to dry out. There's a whole bunch of little things I've seen, and maybe I just have bad luck and most people don't have to deal with this, but I personally have seen a few of these go bad. So I would love to see a full top board replacement, something that has a hue card slot built in, something that has this ribbon cable slot already built in, and maybe you need to just transplant whatever chips are on the original over to this. Maybe it's something where you could replace the chips with off-the-shelf or you know homebrew-based solutions. But I don't know how complicated that is. That might be one of those things that's like seems okay at first, but when you dig into it, it's just too much work for a problem that isn't that widespread. But I just wanted to mention it here in case Remain or any other PC Engine developer has any thoughts on it. And if your thoughts are, Bob, you're a moron, that's not a problem that needs to be fixed that's fine. That's totally fine. I just wanted to throw that out there because I'm in a very interesting position that when I see these amazing projects, I also see other holes that are in the gaming world that might need to be filled. So I wanted to mention that. And I also wanted to apologize. This post uh, was done uh, a while back. Um, I think uh, a year ago was when this was first posted, and then months ago it was released in GitHub in a more final form, and I had written this post that you see here, completed it, and forgot to post it. So my apologies, I did not mean to delay getting this out to people. Uh, I hope not too many people wasted time re- re- replacing the original when they could have used this because I forgot it, so I, I definitely wanted to apologize for that. I went back and double-checked my draft bin and made sure there was nothing else hanging out there that was already completed, uh, but hey, the info is out there now, so if you have a PC engine with a flaky ribbon cable, um, this is not an easy solution, but it's way easier than what was there before, so definitely check this out. Pre-orders are now open for clear replacement shells for PlayStation 1 consoles. These should be compatible with pretty much all of the motherboards from the original PlayStation 1, specifically the 5500, 7000, 7500, and 9000 models, and this should ship this fall. There's a few things to note. First, there's a bunch of different stores selling it, so uh, respectfully pick whichever is closest to you, or if you have multiple things to buy, maybe combine your order. Um, I know all of them, and they're all good people, so pick whichever works for you. 
Also, at the moment, only crystal white is available, which is semi-transparent. It looks really cool. And it comes with the full kit with the lid uh, and other things in there. However, these do not come, and in fact, none of the PlayStation replacement shells I've ever seen come with the controller port slash memory card port, which means if yours is cracked and yellowed, you're going to end up with a beautiful clear case and a cracked and yellowed memory card slot. The people who are working on this are also working on those, but that's about a year away, at least as of now. Things might change. You know, Maybe it's two years away, maybe it's six months away, but... This is not part of that pre-order is, I guess, the main point in saying this. So I personally, if I still had a beat up yellowed PlayStation, I would still purchase this because it looks really cool. And then I would just make a note of which one that I bought. This one's color is called Crystal White. And then when the front controller port slash memory port replacements come, I would just order one to match or, or, or order one completely different to make it look cool and whatever. But point is, if you were looking for a clear PlayStation shell replacement, this is probably the one you've been waiting for. I know when I did the PS1 digital video, I showed, I think it was Beast's uh, clear case, and people went nuts over that, and they were all sold out at that time. So uh, hopefully the hype is still around for it, and if it is, here you go. Now's your chance to order. Now it's time for this week's Mr. Updates, Care of Lou from Lou's Retro Source. As usual, I'm going to skim through these, and if you hear anything that piques your interest, please check out Lou's post and, of course, his video. So let's just jump right in. First up, Lou wanted to cover two things that have been in progress for a while, but he just chose this week to highlight them. The first is a homebrew solution for a GunCon 3. So to explain a moment, a GunCon 3 works kind of similar to a Wiimote in that you have the gun and then the receiver, and you set that on your TV, and that's how it knows where your gun is being aimed. And while that has been working with Mr. for a while, it requires the IR emitters that are very expensive and hard to find. So people have been working on making homebrew emitters so that you could just pick up a gun and then use it with these and use it on your mister. So that seems to be a working solution, and if that interests you at all, definitely check out the info in Lou's post. Also, Lou wanted to highlight the Retrozord adapter, which is a controller adapter that's Arduino-based that does support the PlayStation JogCon, which means if you wanted anything with a driving spinner-esque controller, then that would be a great adapter to use. I actually think I would love to see more of like a giant box that all have controller adapters built in that you could select between snack and regular. So use it in regular mode all the time, switch it to snack mode for light guns type of thing. But um, we'll see what happens. But the Retrozord definitely looks cool. And of course, I've always been a fan of mix adapters, the Damon Byte ones. But um, I'm not sure where the JogCon compatibility would lie, but I think if you have both, give it a try and, and let everybody know. Also, there's been some updates regarding Nichibutsu. I'm probably saying that wrong. Arcade games. Uh, there's a bunch of them that now have beta releases like TerraForce, Crazy Climber, and a couple of others. So if you're into those, definitely run your update script. Uh, I, I think they're available via update all. You just have to turn on unofficial cores and just realize that you're going to be getting a lot of beta stuff, which I personally think is awesome. But if you're not much of a tinkerer and you just want to play perfectly working games, maybe wait for a little while longer. Also, there is a Hitachi Basic Master Core, which is a computer released in 1982 meant for hobbyists. So that's something you could check out if you want. 
There's a beta of Psychic 5, which is a platformer action game that features hovering as a game mechanic. Um, there's also a new Mr. Case from TR Fight Stick. And I saw pictures floating around on Twitter, and this looked very, very cool. So if you were into, you know, neat and unique cases for Mr., definitely check out the posts on Twitter. And of course, Blue shows that in his video as well. There's been more updates to the PlayStation Core. Uh, even though Robert's still injured, there's been some help from other people as well as other stuff that he's implemented that are tweaks and bug fixes. And Paul BNL added direct video stability to it, which is cool. So that's always a big help for people playing on analog monitors. So it's great to see that core continue to be worked on. There's also a new Watara Supervision Core from Kitrinx, uh, which is a handheld that competed with a Game, game Boy but didn't really have as much success. Um, there's also a new Bit Corporation Game Mate Core, and that's another rare Game Boy clone handheld that Kitrinx was able to bring that to the Mister. The Donpachi Core is now public, and that's an awesome core of shooter games, or shooter game, that uh, it's vertically oriented, so if you're playing on a CRT, you have to have it rotated, but that's one of those crazy, very hard, but very fun shooting games that I highly recommend people who like that style try out. Um, there's also support for the arcade version of Lee Trevino's Fighting Golf via the Athena Core, which sounds hilarious. I want to I try that out. I'm assume, assuming it's just golf, but it would be very funny to have a video game with Lee Trevino beating the crap out of people with a golf club. My uncle was a golf pro growing up, so that's, I kind of know who all those people are. Um, I also did the video about uh, using a computer CRT for Mr. And Lou highlighted that. Thank you, Lou. Uh, and I'll also have more info on the decks and other stuff coming up. Uh, and there's some more miscellaneous updates with alternative MRA files and uh, support for screen flip for CRT users, which is pretty cool. Um, that's if I believe if you have your CRT rotated, let's say counterclockwise, and you stumble across games that are clockwise, many of them have support in their service menus to flip it back over. Some don't, though, so this should take care of it, which is great, because I have Beast Sold Sammy Video World, which I'm about to finally take the plunge and try to rotate that and reorient the screen and do a full restoration on it. Maybe a half restoration on it. I won't be able to do as good as Scarlet Sprites and a lot of the other people, but uh, I'll do my best. So anyway, thanks very much to Lou. Please subscribe to his channel. And uh, I really appreciate him keeping us in the loop of all of this stuff and doing all the hard work for us so we get to just watch his videos and see what's been going on in the Mr. World. Lewis and Steve from the Zez Retro podcast just interviewed Andy King, who's been working on CRTs and doing CRT mods for a while. I'm about halfway through the podcast already, and it's very enjoyable. So if you're into CRT modding and you want to talk or you want to listen to a couple of, of fellow CRT nerds talk to each other about their work, definitely give this one a watch or a listen. Just like my podcasts are available everywhere on the Zez Retro YouTube channel or everywhere podcasts are found. Uh, and I will be getting back into doing podcasting soon, maybe next Monday, maybe the week after that. But I also have a bunch of other live streams planned, so there's plenty of content coming. But if you were listening or if you were looking for an audio-only podcast to listen to that uh, nerds out in the same way that I normally do, this is an awesome one to listen to. So thanks to Andy for jumping on there and doing it with them. And of course, always thanks to Lewis and Steve for keeping this stuff going. 
This last post really only concerns people with an H-series BVM or fellow CRT nerds that like to hear weird things. So if you were here for all the other stuff and you don't care about that, feel free to drop off right now. I never want to waste anybody's time, regardless of if the YouTube algorithm will punish me for people dropping off. I don't care. Your time means way more to me than that. So if you are an owner of a D9H or a D14H monitor, or you just want to learn more about BVMs and the weirdness that goes into it. Here's the issue. Sega Master System and PC Engine, as well as plenty of other consoles, have always had a weird issue where the sync curls up on the top of the screen. So it legit will have the screen, the top of the screen moves over to one side and it's pretty much unplayable. And I've been trying to look into different ways to fix this over the years. I've worked with a couple of people on sync cleaner boxes, which we kept putting those projects on hold for in place of more important stuff. And one of the fixes that I found years ago was changing one setting. And it fixed the sync issue, at least on Master System, but drove the colors crazy. And Martin, the same creator of the 129X replacement and the 68X replacement board, found that if you combine that with another setting, you could also fix the colors on SMS. Now, there is a video that I posted here, and uh, I believe a link to everything else as well, um, that somebody was able to demo this for us. And Shout out. Thank you very much. It was very cool that I didn't have to uh, turn on all my equipment for this. I appreciate you beating me to it. But the it shows the issue, the two issues at hand. First, in that you can get SMS working, but at least at the moment, we haven't figured out a way to save it. So every time you power off your BVM and power it back on and use the SMS or uh, SMS games via Genesis, it's the same thing. You'll have to redo this setting, which only takes a minute, but that still is kind of annoying, especially because I don't think it negatively affects anything else. So there would never really be a need to turn this off. I think if you're an owner of those monitors, you might want to double check me and, and please let me know. The other thing is it doesn't seem to fix PC Engine consoles. So... This kind of goes back to what I was saying last week about how I would love to see what things that we could build as a community to fix this. Maybe maybe what we need is some kind of synced cleaning by, uh, box that also does time-based correction. So maybe that's, maybe that's the answer. We build a community-focused time-based corrector. So if you're trying to plug a VCR into a capture card or, or a digital scaler, you have that, and then you uh, flick a button, and it also would work for sync for these devices. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of talking out my ass here. I just really want to try to get the ball rolling to fix all of this stuff. Because while these are very niche problems, if we could fix four or five of these niche problems that you don't really that don't really affect a lot of people, if we could fix all of these with one box with a couple of toggle switches on it, now that one box could fix multiple problems and it would somehow become or it would suddenly become a lot more important. So if we just had one thing for VCRs connecting to like the RetroTink products, that'd be a good idea. People would like it. And if we had one for the SMS fix and one for the PC Engine fix and one to boost voltage for capture cards that do direct RGB input, those are all 
devices that people need. But one box that could do all of it with dual output would be incredible. So um, maybe we could, if anybody has info on all of that stuff, let me know and I'll put you in touch with people who have already done quite a bit of work on all of this stuff to hopefully find one solution that we could do to now suddenly make this an important project. So just to circle back, if you have a D9H or a D14H, check out this video, check out Martin's post, try these settings for yourself and see what you think. Um, and on the flip side, if you have any thoughts on how to contribute to this, because while this issue really is only focused on the H-series BVMs, there are sync-related things that, that really reverberate through all of retro gaming that having one sync-cleaning box would absolutely fix. So any thoughts on that, please let us know. Well, that's it for this time. As always, thanks to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially thank you to anybody who supports in any way possible, because it is you who is keeping all of this stuff alive. So thank you all very much, and I'll see you next week.